850, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome into the 4 o'clock show for your Tuesday afternoon with Brett. Heads up, today's show is pre-recorded, but do have some interviews lined up for you, especially uh, focusing on the local side of politics. As coming up, we are going to be speaking with Aaron Clems of the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy, as we're going to take a closer look at that appeals court ruling yesterday that dealt a significant blow to Polymet's proposed copper nickel mine near Babbitt and Hoyt Lakes in northern Minnesota. It was certainly some good news, but the process far from over, so we'll be chatting with Aaron Clems of the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy coming up in the second half of our program today. But first, very happy to welcome back to the program Kevin Featherly. He is the Capitol staff writer for Minnesota Lawyer, as we're going to be talking about a couple of issues that have happened in the legal community and also at the Minnesota State Legislature and some upcoming topics as well that could be happening at the legislature. So, Kevin, good to have you back on the program. It's been a while. Yeah, how you doing? Uh, doing great over here. Yeah, we've got a number of topics to cover. We're going to be talking about some of these court challenges that uh, different candidates and political parties have been making uh, in regards to who can appear on the primary ballot. Well, I shouldn't really say it's the parties challenging per se, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Also want to talk right. about this gun hearing that's going to be taking place in Hibbing of all places. And then we'll also be touching on these new sentencing guidelines in terms of how long people can remain on probation. So what do you say, Kevin? Should we talk about these court uh, court hearings that have just taken place at the Minnesota State Supreme Court because I find these really interesting because this kind of got in the news when the Republican Party in Minnesota announced that only Donald Trump was going to appear on their presidential primary ballot coming up here in Minnesota. And that, of course, left a number of people up in arms, including Rocky De La Fuente, who's a perennial candidate who wanted to appear on the GOP ballot. He ended up suing the Minnesota Minnesota Republican Party and it ended up going to the Minnesota Supreme Court. So the courts did rule, however, that the parties largely can dictate whoever they want to be on their ballot. Is that largely what the courts kind of ruled, Kevin? Yeah, but I got to correct one little thing, uh, although it's a big thing. The, the uh, Rocky de la Fuente, a noted car salesman from San Diego, did not sue the Republican Party. In fact, he sued Secretary of State Steve Simon. Ah, okay. Why? Which is why we had uh, we had the strange bedfellows of Democrats arguing uh, on behalf of Republicans uh, and winning their case in their stead. Really? Okay, so we ended up suing the Secretary of State's office, and who actually ended up representing the Secretary of State, Steve Simon? Because it, as I hear, it didn't even sound like the Republicans had any representation at these court hearings. No representation, not even an amicus brief. They didn't even file legal briefs to explain either their legal case or to give any indication as to why they may have made this decision to allow Mr. Trump to fight solo in the primary. And some of the but reasons... The, uh, the attorney, you asked the question, the attorney's name was Nathan Hartshorn. He was a, a member of the staff of the attorney general's office. Gotcha. Okay. And it sounded like actually a pretty bipartisan effort between the DFL and the GOP, because I even remember seeing in the news how the DFL actually backed this effort of the Republicans basically being able to decide that they can pretty much say whoever is on their ballot is going to be on the ballot. And that's largely what we ended up seeing the cart the court end up ruling is that even though it's probably not publicly popular, the way primaries work is that, well, basically, the parties can pretty much decide who's on their ballot, no matter what. Right, and and I, I don't know that they were 
uh, at least consciously arguing uh, in a bipartisan manner, <laughs> but right. they were making constitutional arguments that do apply to both parties. So they were suggesting that, you know, the, the Constitution allows for free assembly. That's in the First Amendment. Well, they, they rephrase that as uh, the right of association, and, and both sides were arguing that. So Eric Hardall, on behalf of Rocky De La Fuente, the attorney Eric Hardall, was arguing that argument, and so was the Attorney General, but they were taking polar opposite stances on this issue of right to association. So Rocky De La Fuente says he has a right to associate with Minnesota's voters, and they with him, and their mechanism for associating with him is the primary ballot. The Democrats on behalf of the GOP, I, I shouldn't say the Democrats, this is the, the Attorney General's office on behalf of the Secretary of State. It does happen that they are both Democrats. But they're arguing that the right of association also includes the right not to associate with whomever you choose. And they also argue that that right actually trumps the, the right of, in effect, the right of voters. All right, Kevin, so let's move on to another issue because you brought this to my attention and ended up doing a little research and finding out what's happening with this hearing. It's actually going to be some Senate gun hearings that are taking place in Hibbing next Tuesday. It'll be 1 o'clock at the Crown Building. It's going to be overall, I think, from Senator Warren Limmer, who, by the way, is the chair of the Judiciary and Public Safety Finance and Policy Committee. It's actually the committee that's going to be holding these hearings. They're going to be looking at four Republican bills and two DFL bills. So my question to you is, why exactly are they holding this in Hibbing of all places? Have you gotten any response from Senator Limmer? Yeah, I was actually sitting next to Senator Limmer uh, while covering the next issue we're going to be talking about. And I asked him this question. And he said that, you know, his main explanation is that he wanted to have a change from the norm. All of the gun hearings, and they've been in the House, by the way, the Senate has had none, because at least not in this most recent uh, round of attempts at gun legislation the last few years, the Senate's had no hearings. and the House has, but what uh, Senator Limmer argued to me is that these have all been sort of driven by urban and suburban uh, interests. You know, so if you look at your, you know, you know the folks in the orange shirts who come and, and uh, lobby, you know, and pressure for gun legislation, gun safety legislation, as they call it, um, these are folks largely from the immediate area. He wants to take us out to Hibbing to hear from voters outside the metro area. And, you know, not coincidentally, these are people who are more likely to be in favor of Second Amendment rights, and uh, that is likely to be closer to Trump country. And I just find this kind of curious as well, being that Senator Limmer actually represents, well, largely what's part of the metro area. He represents District 34, which is pretty much portions of Maple Grove, Osseo, and Rogers. So, at least politically, is he possibly even doing this just to have these hearings on, I guess, quote-unquote, safer territory? Well, that's not impossible, but I can tell you that he's told me he's not heard from any of his constituents on this issue. And, and he says that's one of the reasons he's not felt uh, any personal pressure to have these hearings in the past. So let's talk about these bills that are at least going to be debated or at least going to get hearings on. As we were talking about, there's four Republican bills and two DFL bills. The two DFL bills basically look like, to me, the red flag law and then the universal backgrounds checks. Those are both from Senator Ron Latz. But looking at the Republicans' bills, as I'm kind of reading through these, two of these are, for lack of a better way of putting it, and this is me speaking, not you, Kind of off the crazy train where we have one from Mark Corrin, which is basically the right to carry firearms without a permit. 
We also have run from Carry Rude, which is, I believe, using the force of defense or using force in the defense of the home and a person clarification law. But then we do have two somewhat more reasonable bills being proposed, one by Eric Pratt, which would basically have judicially ordered firearm restrictions for abusing parties, enforcement authorization. You can probably paraphrase that better than me, Kevin. And then the other one is a firearms transfer to person ineligible to possess firearm penalties, an increase in terms of that. That's from Senator Paul Anderson. So it looks like as right. these are the two popular bills among Democrats, at least on the DFL side. But among these Republican bills, obviously two of those have no chance of passing either House of the Legislature. But these other two bills being proposed by Paul Anderson and Eric Pratt do appear to have a little bit more of a chance. And it is kind of interesting how Limmer structured these hearings to basically look at all sides of these of these bills, including, well, the two that really have no chance of passing. Well, I think that's an important point. It's certainly a point he likes to make. He, what he's consistently said is that he's not interested in having bills and uh, uh, having hearings on bills that he didn't think had any chance of passing. Well, you might wonder about those two that you mentioned before that are uh, riding aboard a train whose name I shall not mention. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think what these other two are really, I think, uh, you know, they increase penalties. The one increases penalties from um, gross misdemeanor to a felony. Um, the other uh, adds new language that, you know, if, if some the court can ensure the firearms have been tra- transferred, they have 10 business days. And if there's a violation, then the abusing party not in compliance can be held in contempt or, you know, there are other things can can be done. And I think what those really get at, and, and I'm, I must tell you, I haven't queried about these. Uh, I know just about as much as you do because you two have read the bills. Um but I think this, this is toward uh, the point that Senator Limmer was making at his hearing in December, which unfortunately I didn't attend, but I, I know a little bit about what was going on there, where he was surveying the state of current law. And what I think the point that was made frequently is that the current laws on the books are not being enforced. And I think what these are, um, at least this is my sort of Kodak moment interpretation of them, is this is an attempt to strengthen laws that are already on the books and to get them uh, enforced at, at a stronger level. Yeah, and that that's exactly the argument we often hear from Republicans is that, yeah, if we just enforce the laws on the books, that'll go a long way towards solving some of the issues we have in terms of gun reform. And then also, this could also give the Republicans a way to say, hey, we at least did something during this legislative session, because even speaking about Warren Limerick in the chair of this committee, he represents a district that actually had one of his House districts within his Senate district go DFL in 2018. So there certainly could be some concern, not only just among some other suburban Republican senators, but even Limmer's own seat that if they don't at least show that they're taking the gun issue seriously, they could really be putting their political careers kind of in jeopardy. I'm not entirely certain that both of those uh, seats aren't in Democratic hands. I'd have to look at that. But I Yeah, I yeah. Actually, just the, just the B side went DFL. A was actually pretty close, though. Okay. That did stay Republican. Okay. Right. Um, yeah, I think you're right about that. So also the way that the meeting is structured, again, it's going to be taking place in Hibbing next Tuesday, at least kind of talking to Limmer and getting some comments from him. He does not have the intention to make these very contentious meetings because I feel like that could kind of devolve, especially when we talk about these two other more extreme Republican bills. And even when you're talking about the two DFL bills, if you get that up in a very rural area like Hibbing, it seems to me we could have a recipe for a rather contentious and heated meeting up there. 
when people right. I don't know that there's any. I, I don't know if he can really prevent that. I mean, it kind of depends on who shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't. I'm not. I'm not entirely convinced that the distance is going to keep uh, some of the the you know Twin Cities centric uh, protesters at bay. I think some of them might travel up there. I mean, I'm just a lowly reporter, and I'm going up there. Oh, you're going to be going up there yourself. That'll be a. Hopefully, you don't get too oh, much yeah. snow on that drive up there. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, I hope not too. I have, uh, I think I'm going to make it a day trip though, so it'll be in daylight. Yeah, after Hibbing. one o'clock. I should... Yeah, Hibbing is not a short drive. And by the way, in terms of speakers, at least as I was reading through the uh, Senate Committee website, it looks like you only have until I think tomorrow to actually even sign yourself up to speak. So it'll be interesting to see if, as you're talking about some of the more Twin Cities-based gun reform advocates, actually meet that deadline in time. So. uh yeah, I suppose you haven't really heard anything about who actually is planning to attend that meeting from any uh, activist no, groups. No, not or... yet. I have not. Um, but I did see it. I thought it was interesting that um, the, the people who want to speak to Lattes' bill are supposed to check in with Lattes, and the people that want to speak to the other bills are supposed to check in with the committee uh, uh, director. But I thought that's interesting. But I mean, Lattes, I think, is the democratic lead so maybe that's not unusual maybe it's just so unusual to have democratic bills being heard in these committees that i haven't seen this dynamic play out before <laughs> yeah it does seem a little unusual that if you're registering to speak you basically have to kind of declare on what side of the issue you're actually going to be when yeah, i would think in most cases yeah you would just kind of register if you need to and then show up and testify or make your arguments for or against bills when you have committee hearings at least as far as i know that's normally kind of how this works isn't it well, they like to have people check in in advance, but they do allow people to, you know, just kind of show up at the spur of the moment, sign their name, and, you know, if there's time, they give them a couple of minutes. So they don't always have to, they certainly don't always have to declare, you know, affiliation. And that was part one of my conversation with Kevin Featherly of Min Lawyer. Coming up in part two, we're going to be talking about this idea of having caps on probation here in the state of Minnesota. It's a big reform that a lot of criminal justice reform advocates have been looking for for quite some time. So we'll chat more about that with Kevin coming up next. And we're back on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett on the 4 o'clock show again, program pre-recorded today, but very happy to get back to our conversation with Kevin Featherly. He is, again, the Capitol reporter with Min Lawyer, as we're now going to switch gears and talk about this idea of capping probation sentences here in Minnesota, as it's certainly something that a lot of criminal justice reform advocates have been seeking for quite some time here in the state. So let's get back to my conversation now with Kevin Minnesota is on track to basically start capping probation sentences for felony convictions at now five years, as last week the State Sentencing Guidelines Commission voted to apply the five-year cap to most offenders convicted of a felony. But they did say, I believe, that homicides and sexual assaults would be excluded from this reform. So can you talk about what exactly prompted the State Sentencing Guidelines Commission to make changes this time? Because I'm sure we've had advocates pushing for these types of changes for, well, a long, long time. I can, but again, I need to back up because uh, it's a little bit, in fact, it's really clearly a misnomer to call this a cap. This is not a cap that they actually approved. They did consider a cap. 
what mm. they up until January 2nd, what they had in mind was a hard cap five years. That's it. No, uh, actually, I was going to say no exceptions. But what that really means is no judicial discretion. What was actually passed is really considered a guideline, not a cap, although it sort of functions the same. What it does is it, it lays out in the sentencing guidelines a presumptive five-year maximum probation period. Um, but it allows, as the original uh, plan did not, for judicial discretion uh, in order to, for a judge to, de- to depart upwards, he would need to lay out his rationale and then that would be subject to scrutiny. So, but, it, so I mean, there will be higher, uh, longer-term probations, at least in some cases. Right, but it's going to be more, kind of the default is going to be at least on five, yeah. even though it's not a cap. Yeah, that'll be how most sentences will work. And as you're talking about, judge will basically need to have a good reason for keeping someone above that five-year period, correct? Well, no, nobody's better at coming up with a good reason than a judge, though. Yeah, exactly. They are, they are certainly uh, good at doing that. That is a very good point they, to bring they up. They know their law. So I think that we're going to see a number of these. This is not going to be uncommon for probations to stretch. I don't think it's going to be the norm, but I don't think it's going to be uncommon for probations to stretch beyond five years. So will this actually have a major effect in terms of probation? Because as you're talking about, judges kind of have their own discretion. Are, are we expecting to see a major impact on this, or is it going to be kind of a wait-and-see approach? I think there's a bit of a wait-and-see approach. My, my gut is to say that, yes, there will be, because what this does now is it tells judges across the state five years is the standard. I mean, it doesn't mean every, every crime has to have a five-year probation, um, but it does tell judges that, you know, this is presumably as high as you can go unless you can show us a, a reason why not. So I think it will certainly have an impact on, uh, you know, people having 40 and 25 year probations because, you know, if, if the, if it's in the guidelines that this five year is sort of the max standard, it's going to be pretty hard to justify going up that high. Right. And even some of the research that was presented by advocates in favor of a change or even having a cap were questioning the effectiveness of actually having lengthy probation sentences, basically saying they weren't really effective at keeping people out of trouble. And in some cases, they prevented a lot of uh, felons from actually getting jobs after they were released from prison and still on probation, correct? Right. And there's also another argument that I hadn't heard until yesterday, which I thought was kind of intriguing, which is that if you give people these long probation terms, what that sort of tells the, you know, the probation officers and the county officials and all these other folks that are supervising that you kind of can relax a little. You've got time. You don't have to get these people necessarily services immediately. And that's a big mistake. At least that's according to Kelly Mitchell, who's the chair of the Sensing Guidelines Commission, because if you take that sort of relaxed approach, you're missing the opportunity to have the real impact in those first two years when probation can genuinely, by their lights, have a positive impact. And protect public safety. So what was some of the pushback we saw against this change? Because ultimately we did not see a cap as you brought up. Was it just the fact that they still wanted to leave judicial discretion with the judges? Or what was some of the pushback we saw against this change? One of the really interesting uh, pushbacks uh, came from the two of the judiciary members. There's a former Supreme Court Associate Justice Christopher Dietzen on that panel. There is a current sitting Court of Appeals judge, Michelle Larkin, on that panel. And they both argued that, you know, effectively, this is a cap and they don't want a cap. They say it's a cap because it it puts judges in a very peculiar position. According to their argument, 
in, it's this may be a little confusing. I hope I can state it clearly. If in order for a judge to um, do a dispositional departure, in other words, change the presumptive sentence, in other words, keep somebody out of prison and put them on probation, he has to do two things. First, to justify not putting the person in jail, in prison, he has to have a downward departure to justify probation. Now, if he wants that person who he doesn't want to put in prison to have a longer than a five-year probation, he has to justify an upward departure on the very same case, in which case they're saying that really means this is the cap because nobody's going to be able to make both of those arguments and make them stick. Now, I'm a little skeptical personally that they won't because to me it's not, it just strikes me that if this becomes standard operating procedure, the courts will adjust and you know judges will make be able to do both of those things if, if they're necessary. But that is their argument that those that, that sort of catch-22 scenario creates a de facto cap and they don't want a cap. They want judges to have discretion. And really, there, there's an argument to be made that they were trying in, in effect to, you know, preserve the status quo. That, that's certainly the argument that proponents make, that that's what these folks are doing. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the next few years because, yeah, it's it's tough to see how this could actually play out eventually when it goes into practice and judges decide to make some of these some of these decisions in terms of maybe keeping someone on probation longer than five years. Uh, how does this system compare to other states, at least prior to this change and then, well, after this change? How do we compare in Minnesota to other states and their probationary systems? Well, what I've been hearing in hearings over and over again is that uh, most states, Minnesota is out of step with most states. Most states, I don't know if they necessarily have probation caps, but they they typically don't have the long duration probations that Minnesota does. But what Minnesota doesn't have is long prison sentences. And and so that's been the trade-off. Judges have been keeping people out of incarceration uh, and instead subjecting them to long supervised release terms. And, you know, one of the things that Justice Dietzen argues is that this is going to put judges in a position of having to execute prison sentences because judges are going to be very uncomfortable with this uh, five-year presumptive mm-hmm. cap, and so it means they're going to be, feel more comfortable putting people in prison. There may be some offenders who who are more comfortable going to prison rather than serve out 40-year probations, though, you know? Yeah. We've had people argue that. Yeah, and you you could have those unintended consequences from people who are advocating for reform, whereas you're talking about it sounds like judges could actually say, all right, well, I'm just going to make your prison sentence longer because I don't want you on probation for only one year or two years after you're released from prison. Right, because the the newest member, who's a judge who did vote for this, by the way, which I found very intriguing, one of the judges, the brand new member, voted for this. But he also made it very clear that one of his fears about this is that, you know, it puts judges in a, a pretty tough position because if somebody's put on probation and then screws up, who gets blamed? Not the probation department, not the corrections department, it's the judge. And it, it puts the judges in a, a, a pretty sticky situation Putting them sort of putting their face in front of this giant mistake, and yeah. you know even but even though he laid that out in a in a moment of unusual candor, I thought um, he nonetheless voted in the end for the reform. 
Yeah, then you kind of have that can of worms possibly opening up too. If you have some of these judges that are well elected or have to face election, yeah, they certainly don't want yeah. to be on the wrong side of that whatsoever. That could be a political. And those suicide. are becoming more competitive contests. Judges are facing more competitive contests gradually over time. Wow. Yeah. So, that, yeah. There is a lot of different directions that could go. It was only an issue I was kind of looking at at a very base level, but as you kind of dove deeper into this with me, Kevin. Yeah, this is really interesting to see how this plays out over the next few years, and hopefully we don't have some of those unintended consequences, at least on both sides of the issue, in terms of how people think about it. Hey, we well, I dig my job, man. Did your job excellently. Always fun to chat with you, Kevin. <laughs> hey, we've been speaking with Kevin Featherly. He's the Capital Staff Writer for Minnesota Lawyer. And by the way, you can find more information at minlawyer.com, M-I-N-N lawyer.com. You can also follow them at... Uh, at lawyer mn and uh kevin i didn't write it down but what's your twitter handle because you also tweet out a lot of good information on your account too idiotically i made my twitter handle my name at kevin featherly oh you, well at least you got it before another kevin featherly did <laughs> right yeah yeah because yeah, i can't uh, go i'm out there fully exposed fully exposed and you can find at kevin featherly over there on twitter well, it's an easier name than brett Johnson. i'm sure that was probably taken up at about 2008 or 2009 when twitter first came around hey kevin thanks so much for joining us on the program today always good to chat with you yeah good talking to you brett and coming up next we're going to take a deeper look at this court of appeals ruling yesterday that dealt a significant blow to polymet's proposed copper nickel mine in northern minnesota as we're going to be speaking with aaron clems of the minnesota center for environmental advocacy AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to the 4 o'clock show with Brett. So yesterday, the State Court of Appeals dealt a significant blow to Polymet's proposed copper nickel mine that's supposed to be built near Babbitt and Hoyt Lakes in northern Minnesota. Basically, the State Court of Appeals ruled that the DNR made an error by not holding what's called contested case hearings on Polymet's permits to discuss potential environmental concerns. So... Joining us to talk about that court ruling yesterday is Aaron Clems. He is the Director of Public Engagement for the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy. So, Aaron, welcome to the program, and you guys have to be feeling pretty good about that ruling yesterday. Yeah, thank you, Brett. And, and yes, we, we feel great about it. We think it's a, a tremendous win for the people of Minnesota and everybody who lives downstream of this polluting mine proposal. And we were really looking forward to hopefully making better decisions in the future and using this decision as a way of kind of reopening the conversation about the best way to bring economic vitality and clean water to northern Minnesota. So let's dive into this ruling that the State Court of Appeals made yesterday. They basically said, as we talked about, how the DNR did not hold contested case hearings on those polymet uh, permits. So can you explain what exactly the DNR did not do and if things may have, may have would have turned out differently when they issued those permits had we had contested case hearings? Yeah, so... and. This is obviously some of, well, some, some of the terms, like a contested case hearing, might not be familiar to folks that are listening. Right. But basically, this is an administrative trial. Uh, and it's very common in many different um, decisions that the, that the government makes. So, for example, our Public Utilities Commission, when making decisions about pipelines or energy projects, almost as a matter of course, orders one of these contested case hearings. And what happens is that all the parties that are involved get together, they present their evidence, uh, they bring witnesses. 
those witnesses are cross-examined, and it's a trial. And at the end of the trial, the administrative law judge makes a recommendation about what they think the agency should do based on the facts that are in front of them and the law. Like I said, this is a common step that's frequently requested by even mining companies when they disagree with decisions. Um, in this case, we felt like it should have been done before the DNR issued these permits, and we asked them to do so, and they refused. Uh, and instead, the DNR made a decision on those permits based on what they felt like they knew the record was. Um, and they acknowledged that groups like MCEA and the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa had presented conflicting evidence that showed that there was a risk from their mines, from their mine dam, or that the, the pollution that they were predicting would not occur would actually occur. Uh, but they, instead of actually trying to get to the bottom of what the facts were, the DNR pushed forward and issued the permits anyway. And yesterday, the Court of Appeals said they shouldn't have done that. There was definitely conflicting facts of material issues that needed to be resolved, and they kicked it back to the DNR and ordered them to hold a contested case hearing, basically a full trial to ascertain what the facts are. So who exactly is the person who decides in that trial? I know you were saying something about, I think, like an administrative judge. Is that person actually affiliated with the DNR, or are they an independent party? Well, they're independent of the DNR, but, they're, but what they're basically doing is making a recommendation to the DNR about what they should do. Um, so administrative law judges don't have the power to order things. They can't say you must or must issue or must not issue these permits, but they can make a recommendation to the Department of Natural Resources and said, based on the record and the law, I don't believe this meets the standards or that it does. Uh, the DNR is free to either accept the recommendation or disregard it, but it makes our case stronger if we have to appeal an additional permit. So, for example, if the administrative law judge has the trial and determines that that Polymet's proposal can't meet Minnesota standards, and then the DNR issues the permit anyway, it makes it possible for us to then appeal again and prevent the permit from being issued. So that is kind of the next step in this process, because ultimately, unfortunately, the court didn't rule that the Polymet mine obviously could not be built. Basically, this is going to go back to what you're talking about with a contested hearing, where we will have another hearing on these Polymet permits, and that's kind of the next step in this process, correct? Well, there is a step before that, which is that the, the Department of Natural Resources or Polymet could request the, the, the Supreme Court to review this case. And so that they have 30 days to make that decision. Um, it seemed like in their reaction immediately after the decision uh, yesterday that they were considering that. If that happened, it would definitely push the timeline back quite a bit, um, because then the Supreme Court would have two months to decide whether to accept the petition. And if that happened, it could be another year before the Supreme Court hears the case. Um, so there's that step first. Um, but I also want to point something else out that I think folks don't understand about environmental law is that it's really not it's really not in the purview of the appeals court to say you cannot build this project ever. Uh, the court can say this proposal doesn't meet our standards. The court can say you have to do additional work to determine whether it meets our standards. But ultimately, the court doesn't make the decision. It's the Department of Natural Resources that has to decide that this doesn't meet our standards and to say no to it. Um, and that's one of the bigger issues in this case, is that the appeals court basically said to the DNR, you can say no. You can say no to a project that risks our water. And so far, I think the Department of Natural Resources have been, been approaching this case as though their job is to get to yes, to find a way to make this happen. And they've been very deferential to PolyMet and saying to PolyMet, well, what do you want to do? And I think that this hopefully will change the conversation so that rather than the DNR thinking of PolyMet as their client, that they start thinking about the people of Minnesota as their client. And to think about 
the reasons why they, they might say no to a project, as well as the idea that they could say yes. Well, talking about this idea as well that you mentioned about this possibly getting appealed to the Supreme Court here in Minnesota, that could also cause some major problems for this polymet mine as well, because obviously they need to get funding put together for this mine within, well, the next little while. Otherwise, they could essentially be having the clock run out on them, correct? Well, I mean, the, the thing that's weird about this is that, you know, in Minnesota, we have a lot of examples of mines that have been permitted and that don't get financing and then don't get built. So, for example, the one that listeners might be most familiar with is the SR Steel or the Chippewa Capital Partners or whatever they're calling it now. It's gone through multiple ownerships. But that permit to mine for that taconite mine proposal near Nashwalk was issued in 2008. And here we are in 2020, and it still hasn't been built yet, or at least it's been built partially, and it keeps on running out of money. Um, so there's really no time frame on the uh, no no time expiration date on these permits. And that's part of the reason why we think it's so important that the DNR get this right. Um, certainly, not having permits in hand makes it very difficult for Polymet to secure financing. Um, and it's not just this permit; these two permits, the dam safety and permit to mine, now that have been overturned, that are a problem for them. Uh, just next week, there will be a hearing into the water pollution permit and whether or not the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency suppressed the comments of EPA scientists to prevent them from objecting to the, the permit issued, the, the water pollution permit. So there's multiple permits at stake right now. And while, those are, while there's a cloud of uncertainty around this project, it does make it very difficult for them to get financing. And I'm taking it this financing is likely coming from Glencore, who, of course, is the parent company of Polymet. Uh, what's their reaction been to this hearing as well? Has there been any that we've seen? Um, Glencore itself has not issued any press statements. Uh, Polymet, though, put out a very uh, general statement saying they were reviewing the decision and considering all their options. But beyond that, there hasn't been a reaction from the company or their parent company. And you were talking about some of the other issues we've had with Polymet's permits, and I know I think we talked last fall about this water permit, which is just unbelievable that they were basically suppressing the comments from scientists, as you talked about, uh, from the EPA. Uh, talking more about Glencore uh, being the parent company of Polymet, have we had any movement in terms of their names actually being on the permits? Because that's what really concerns me about this whole process, is that if we do have some sort of environmental disaster, if these mines get built, What's to stop Polymet from going out of business and then having the state be on the hook? No, I think you're exactly right about that, Brett. I think that, you know, so far um, we've, we haven't heard from the Department of Natural Resources about their decision about whether to add Glencore to this permit or not. Um, but now this issue will be part of the contested case hearing that goes back to the administrative law judge. Uh, in fact, the, the appeals court's decision yesterday specifically calls out this question. Um, when the court heard the oral arguments a couple of months ago, um, what the Department of Natural Resources lawyer told the court was that they had a process in place for determining whether or not Glencore had operational control of Polymet. And I, I think this argument is kind of laughable, to be perfectly honest. Uh, Polymet's stock is owned 72% by Glencore. Glencore can appoint a majority of the board. Uh, and ultimately, every single cent of money that Polymet has spent over the last uh, eight or nine years has come directly from Glencore. So the question about whether or not Glencore has control of Polymet is kind of a laughable one from our perspective. And yesterday, the court kicked that back to the, the appeals, the appeals court kicked that back to, into the contested case hearing process. So we'll have a chance to argue in front of the administrative law judge that Glencore should be added to the permit. And your concern about being able to walk away in, in case of a disaster is well-founded. 
while there is financial assurance in place for the regularly scheduled closing costs of the mine, there's nothing in place beyond a $10 million insurance policy for any catastrophic loss. And if a tailings dam were to break, it could cost hundreds of millions of dollars, and even that wouldn't fully clean up the disaster that would be left behind. Well, we've seen reaction from some of the members of the state legislature, including Paul Gazelka, who is very unhappy about this ruling. As we head into the next session, are we expecting any legislative push, at least from, I'm guessing, mostly Republicans? Although there are some DFLers who are very much in favor of the polymet mine in terms of trying to speed up the process, but I'm not sure by somehow changing the rules to make things easier for polymet to get these permits. Well, I, that's certainly a possibility, and you know, I think that if they if they do take that approach, it's really hypocritical. I mean, ultimately, the arguments on the side of Polymet, the proponents and the boosters of it, have been that Minnesota has the strongest standards in the world, and that we should follow and respect the process. Well, we disagree that these are the strongest standards in the world for lots of reasons. But the bottom line is, if these standards that we have in place right now are such that the courts are saying that Polymet doesn't meet them. Uh, then it would be hypocritical for them to then go turn around and say, we should undermine the very standards we said protected Minnesotans just last week. Um, so I don't, I don't expect that those kinds of moves to repeal laws that protect Minnesotans' water and our, and our health will get much traction at the, at the legislature this session, but I don't doubt that somebody might try. And so, of course, MCEA and others will be vigilant at the legislature to make sure that we don't undermine the standards that the court applied in this case, and that if the process needs to be followed, then this is part of that process. Uh, and it was the court finally intervening and saying to the DNR, you have to have an arbiter, an arbiter, a neutral decision maker, make a recommendation before you decide on whether this permit meets state standards or not. And, and as you brought up a few minutes ago, they can basically not follow what this neutral arbiter says. But as you're talking about, though, then that would allow you to appeal this to more courts, which again could delay the project and maybe get Glencore and other entities that could be financing this project cold feet. So, again, as you talked about, they, they still could end up not going with this recommendation of this neutral arbiter, but you would think that would not be a very good decision probably on their part of the DNR. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that the DNR right now has to do some soul-searching. Um, you know, their job is to defend Minnesota's resources and protect our water. And the court's decision yesterday basically repudiated the broken process that they used to issue these permits. Um, you know, it's, it's up to Glencore to decide whether or not a mine that meets Minnesota's standards is something they want to finance. Um, but so far, what we've seen is a pattern of cutting corners, of trying to find the cheapest way, and in, in many ways, the most dangerous ways to store mine waste, and a DNR that hasn't been willing to stand up to Polymet and to Glencore and tell them, no, that's not acceptable, it doesn't meet our standards, and you can't do that. And if you want to mine in our state, you have to meet standards that are going to protect people's health in our water. And so far, it has been a process that is designed to get to yes and to get to something that Polymet and Glencore think is the cheapest way to build this mine. And Minnesotans don't want that. Minnesotans have never wanted that. Um, regardless of how you feel about copper-nickel mining in general, you have to recognize that if there is a need for mining, it cannot come at the expense of our, our children and grandchildren's water. It cannot come at the expense of their health. And so one of the things that I think this decision yesterday does is gives us a chance to take a step back, to look at this broken process and make better decisions in the future. And we hope the legislature and the DNR and Governor Walls will all take that step back and take a look at it um, to make better decisions in the future. 
So as we potentially head back to possibly having these contested case hearings, what are some of the concerns you guys and obviously the Fond du Lac uh, band of Chippewa have beyond obviously the major concerns like drinking water? What are some of the other concerns you guys have that might be kind of floating under the radar that people don't know about? Well, one of the things that the court decided yesterday, the, the court basically said, we're not going to make decisions about these permits except um, in one case. Um, we'll send them all back to the contested case hearing except for one. And they said that this, term, this permit needs a term. It needs to expire at some point because Minnesota statute requires that mining permits have a term. That sounds really technical and relatively you know, abstract, but here's what that means. Um, under Minnesota law, permits for non-ferrous mining are irrevocable during their term. And so what had happened was the DNR had issued a permit that cannot be revoked and also never ends. And Minnesotans have not signed up for a bargain that says that we have a never-ending obligation uh, for water pollution at one of these mines. And that's what the court also noted. It said that for you know, the, the polymets' own modeling shows that there will be pollution at the site for 200 to 500 years after they close. Right? So that's one of the biggest issues for us is can Minnesota, can, can a, a, a mine that promises hundreds of years of water pollution after it closes meet Minnesota standards to say that you have to have a term where at some point you say, yep, the mine is done, it is operated, and reclamation is complete? According to Polymet's own modeling, that's not possible. Um, there's a whole host of other issues that would be confronted in a contested case hearing, though, that include financial assurance and whether or not Minnesota taxpayers are protected, um, whether or not the upstream dam that they would propose to store this mine waste before we behind meets Minnesota's laws and whether it's a current prudent engineering practice um, and a whole host of other issues that are mentioned in the, in the decision that revolve around the question about whether our water is protected and whether this dam is safe. And those are all the facts that this administrative law judge in this contested case hearing will be gathering information from, getting testimony from us and our experts, getting testimony from the Fond du Lac Band and their experts, and also the DNR and their experts, and ultimately to make a decision that's based on all of that stuff as opposed to just what the DNR's perspective is. All right, final question here for you, Aaron. So ultimately, does Polymet need all of these permits approved before they're able to open and start construction on this mine? Because besides these permits that we talked about uh, with this court ruling, as you brought up, they also still have issues with this separate water permit, which it sounds like is going to be ruled on in the coming weeks and months. Is Polymet, do they actually need all of these permits approved, or can they start the process even if they have still a few of these up in the air? Uh, they have to have all these permits in place before they can begin construction and operation. And so the court decision yesterday, which voided the existing permits, the permit to mine and the dam permits, means that Polymet can't move forward at all right now with construction until they have those. Um, the water permit is necessary before they can begin operation. And so right now, because of the uncertain, because of the fact that these permits were struck down yesterday and the uncertainty surrounding the water permit, Polymet is not able to move forward with their construction until these issues are resolved by the administrative law judge. And you know, I think that's also one more reason why it's so critical that folks continue to push forward on the, and if they're, if they, if they're concerned about this project like we are, we ask them to join us. Um, as you said, the legislature could try to repeal these laws. Certainly the Supreme Court could revisit this question. So we need folks to sign up with us and, and to be part of our team that's defending this win. So please go to peopleversuspolymet.org, peoplevspolymet.org. Um, and there's a petition there that, allow, that allows you to sign up as somebody who supports these appeals. 
do that, please, because it'll help us make the case to legislatures and the governor and others that now is the time for us to take a stand to make better standards and to protect our water for the next generation. We've been speaking with Aaron Clems. He's the Director of Public Engagement for the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy. You can find more about them at mncenter.org. You can also follow them on Twitter at MCEA1974 or Aaron on Twitter, just at at Aaron Clems. And give me that website one more time that you were talking about just a second ago where people can follow along more with this process. Yeah, it's peopleversuspolymet.org, and it's a website that we've set up to, to, to put all the information about all the legal cases against polymet. So I just, I just got done updating it a moment ago. So it's up to date from yesterday's decision with the decision and press releases and all that stuff. So peopleversuspolymet.org. Very good. Hey, Aaron, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brett. Appreciate it, too. And coming up next on our final segment of the show, we're going to talk about how Angie Craig has a new Republican challenger in CD2. So stick around. One final segment left on the show. to AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson on the final segment of the 4 o'clock show. A couple of miscellaneous pieces of news and notes before we wrap things up today. Angie Craig has a new Republican challenger in CD2. Her name is Erica Cashin. She is a 24-year veteran of the Air Force. Unfortunately, in her press release, not a whole lot in terms of policy positions, but she at least did use a lot of the usual Republican rhetoric saying that Angie Craig is extreme and represents elements of Nancy Pelosi and the radical political left. So you can kind of see where that's going, at least with some of the rhetoric in her press release. She does join Rick Olson as another person who is seeking the CD2 Republican nomination. If you remember, Rick Olson is kind of an unusual guy to be seeking the Republican nomination, being that he actually was in favor of impeachment and actually does have some good stances in terms of environmental issues. So wouldn't be surprised if we even see a third or a fourth more prominent Republican challenger being that Erica Cashin and Rick Olson, not exactly the most well-known names in Republican circles. Also a reminder tonight, we do have another Democratic debate, and this one should be worth watching, being that there only will be six candidates on the stage, because, boy, once we got late into 2019, some of those debates got awfully tough to watch when you had 10 or 12 people on that stage. Basically just became kind of more dueling press conferences than an actual substantive debate. So kind of looking forward to that debate tonight now that there will only be six candidates on the stage. And by the way, we will be carrying that debate on AM 950, so go ahead and give it a listen here on the radio. And one final note before we wrap things up today. Coming up January 29th, a reminder that you can meet me along with Professor David Schultz over at Hamlin University January 29th, as Professor Schultz is going to be doing a forum, a Q&A, and also a talk about impeachment and other political topics. Again, that's going to be on January 29th, Hamlin University in Anderson, room 305. It'll be from 7 until about 8.30 or 9 o'clock. We have details about that posted over on am950radio.com. Well, that's all the time we have on the program for today. I'm back with a live show tomorrow with debate reaction and more. So thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you on a Wednesday.